Hey guys, this is Truma, and you are listening to The Silent Duck. Follow me on Instagram, Facebook, wherever you listen to podcasts. I do want to let you know that we actually are starting a Patreon account uh, for just two bucks a month. You can support this podcast and the work that we do. Um, I just want to say, you know, I wouldn't be asking if I didn't have associated costs with the podcast, whether it's hosting the podcast on a site, uh, recording with guests, the microphones that I use, the music that we mix, and then the time that's necessary in order to get these out to you guys. Uh, there, There is a lot of sort of effort that goes in here. So I would really appreciate it if, you know, any support you could give. Um, so let's get to the episode. So I want to talk about change. Uh, John Allen Paulos coined the quote, um, uncertainty is the only certainty there is. One of the early challenges as a new physician is the amount of rapid change you undergo on a consistent basis. Every month, the members on your team change. Every month, you have a new boss. And every month, at least at Emory, you're in a different building with different ancillary staff, different nurses, respiratory therapists, lab technicians, all of whom don't know you and you don't know them. But you get used to this change within the first few months or so. You start to understand how to deal with multiple different kinds of people. But COVID was a different kind of change, one that nobody was prepared for. And it came in a moment of other immense changes as well, personal, social, and everything in between. So that's what I want to talk about today. How do we weather change in the COVID era? So I want to introduce our guest, Dr. Rebecca Engels. Dr. Engels graduated magna cum laude from the University of Georgia. She attended Emory University for medical school and, of course, thrived at Emory's internal medicine program. She will be working as a hospitalist next year at John Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. Woo woo, my hometown. Uh, her research interests include healthcare innovation and quality improvement. Okay, so now that you see that she's super awesome, let's get started. Listening to the Silent Duck. Uh, today we have 
a real treat. Uh, we have Dr. Rebecca Engels on the show, uh, and we're just going to be talking really all things COVID and perhaps perhaps new beginnings. Uh, so I'd like, Dr. Engels, if you could just give us a one-liner about yourself to just sort of get us started. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Chuma. Um, so my name is Becca Ingalls, and I just finished my internal medicine residency and will be working as a hospitalist at Johns Hopkins Hospital starting next month. Mm-hmm. Um, I know. Going to join my husband, who's a cardiology fellow up there. Um, nice. Actually, and- I will have to stop you right there. Yeah. So, um, I'm, I, so I'm going to celebrate you but I went to University of Maryland, Baltimore <laughs> for medical school. Um, you know, people don't know that's, 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 that's the West side. Uh, so as much as I'm happy for you, there is, there's that other university. That other place. That yes. deals with the adults mostly, <laughs> you know? So I, I admit it, but I'm happy for you. Well, I would ask you for all of these restaurant recommendations if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, but. That is true. Um, so a lot of places have actually, man, there's been so much change because I was actually, I was just like FaceTiming with a friend of mine in Baltimore mm-hmm. and like, we were, we were like, it was so weird. They were serving them alcohol and they're like, okay, you, you. And then we were on the FaceTime. We're like, oh no, can we get a, you know, gin tonic? And like, <laughs> no, you cannot order from the phone. Um, but <laughs> so uh, Iron Rooster is a really dope, um, you know, breakfast place. Mm. They have like these really tasty Pop-Tarts. Oh, yum. Yeah, giant tasty Pop-Tarts. Yum. Lebanese Taverna. I feel like that's a chain, but the one that was like downtown is pretty good. Um, I mean, there's... There's, there's lots of great... I feel like the last time I went, there were so many new restaurants. Yeah, it seems to be developing a lot. Um, We're actually going to be moving into a new townhome development um, because there's just like so much activity going on there. So yeah, yeah. pumped. Yeah, no, no, it's going to be, it's, I'm, I'm excited for you guys. Baltimore is a, this so the thing about Atlanta that Baltimore has like a infinite amount of steps over Atlanta in is that the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I think you'll, you know, when yeah. you get to spend some time at the Harbor and like, you see how much of an attraction it is. Yeah. Yeah. You'll see that it, it is, it's one of the things that I, I really miss about, I miss about Baltimore. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, your one liner was where you're going, work related. What what kinds of what kinds of hobbies do you have? What do you do in your free time? So this is a lot of pre COVID things, um, and also pre baby who was born in December. Uh, but Mark and I would really like the to explore the food scene in Atlanta, specifically Buford mm-hmm. Highway. We okay. um, Particularly love sushi, so we had I had a list that we would try and tr- go to as many sushi restaurants in the Atlanta area as possible. Yeah. Um, and other than that, we really liked to travel. Mark is Dutch, so we frequently would go visit his family in the Netherlands, and wow. yeah. Um, so it kind of was always a fun trip to do every year, but we didn't get to do it this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Were you guys planning on going this year? We were. We were supposed to go in May. Um but it got canceled. Um Mark's oh. schedule got totally 
redone back in March. Um, so his two weeks of vacation kind of got pushed back until June. And wow. I mean, the borders are even closed right now, I think to the U S still. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Had you guys already booked anything? No, fortunately we hadn't because okay. the tickets were so expensive this year. We were waiting to see. So we didn't have any um, money invested in the trip, which yeah. was nice. Yeah. yeah. It has been um, kind of crazy to just all the things that COVID has impeded. I know. know? Like I, know. I keep, I feel like every single per- I mean, I remember I was at Emory, I was just talking to one of the you know nurse practitioners there and she was saying how she had like a, a trip to Mexico, like a 10 day trip already booked. And then she couldn't get any of the money. Oh, back. No. Oh no. Right. She couldn't get like the flight. I think they gave her, they were, they just said they gave her credit. Yeah. Um, but then the hotel wasn't willing to give her anything. And then like another person, you're like another woman, she had her wedding planned. Oh and my then, gosh. Yeah. Then the venue was like, no, like they basically were just, they gave, I think they were going to give her like maybe 15% of oh, the what? whole thing back. Yeah. That's not and, anything. And then, her, then the caterers she had to deal with who, who didn't want, so they were like, okay, you can come back. If you come back in a year, yeah, yeah next you get, year. If you get married <laughs> in the next year, yeah. <laughs> then we'll give you, it's, so I mean, it's, it is crazy how much COVID has, has sort of um, has changed things. Yeah. 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 Um, do you have any recommendations, either like show-wise, book-wise, that you yeah. could, uh, put out to us? So uh, both. The most recent show that I watched was The Great on Hulu. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. I've not heard of this. And I'm not really one for like, I guess it's not really a period drama. It's about Catherine the Great and her, she's like an um, Austrian who marries the Russian Tsar and basically um, throws a coup and becomes the empress. And wow. I know okay. it's is very it, interesting. Is this like nonfiction or correct? I mean, so they really? have like their asterisks in the like intro is like <laughs> ba- sometimes based on a true story. So like the, the little things I think are okay. just funny and, and random, but right, right. some of the real things that happen, like she, um, was a big proponent of a smallpox vaccine. And they use this weird word in the show that I can't remember off the top of my head, but she basically inoculates herself with smallpox um, to then prove that it works so that a lot of Russians will um, get it. And that actually really happened apparently. Wow. I know. So you just laid out exactly how we need to push for yeah. the future COVID-19 vaccine. Let's have <laughs> Trump do it first. And then... <laughs> Well, look, you know, I don't want to harbor anything negative on anyone. You know, I hope, I mean, if, if the vaccine works, you know, we should give him the vaccine first. Yes. Um, just so we can, he can prove to everyone. Yeah. All his. Yeah. Yep. yep. Yeah. I don't want to say anything more on that before I say something <laughs> negative. Uh, yeah. So I'll give my recommendation. Okay. So me and my fiance, we just uh, finished uh, Little Fires Everywhere. Ooh. For those who have not watched this show, I mean, come on. Sorry, it's so good. Like, it's I haven't so seen it. Good. So I think I, I'll say this, and hopefully this is a, a different take than people who have heard about the show but decided not to watch for whatever reason. <laughs> the one, it's eight episodes, so you, mm-hmm. you can 
this is a show that you can binge. You can just sit there, get the ice cream out, get the chips, and then just binge it. The other part, too, is that the complexity of the female characters in this show, I mean, it, it's, it, it sort of startles me. And it almost it sort of made me check my own sort of like male privilege, if you will, because I think a lot of times in shows, I get used to the, the only complex characters being men mm. that when you see so many mm-hmm. that are female and then you see that the simplicity of some of the male characters, I'm like, Oh my God, is this how women Cause I was so mad. Like the first couple episodes, I'm like, man, they have like, they caricature this dude and caricature this person. Um, and it's only until the end where the male characters actually, you know, start to show some depth, but the whole time, you know, like Carrie Washington's character, mm. with like uh, Reese Witherspoon's character, like they're just these like very, you know, complex and you know just deep people. It's it's, yeah. it's a really good show. Um, I'll have to so, check it out. Yeah, I, I did. I was not a believer until you know we got to episode six, and then it went to another level, and I was like, all right, look, this is it's not Game of Thrones, you know, it's, it's, it's not that <laughs> level, but it, it, it's pretty good. Last season Game of Thrones or like everything else oh, Game of Thrones? Look, we're not even, don't <laughs> even try and take this there because actually, okay, look, we have to spend some time. Now that you brought it up, we just have to spend some time. So I, <clears throat> I mean, I loved that show. Yeah. I, same. I loved, I didn't, I didn't even, how come you, you know, we used to watch this. Sorry, this is, I mean, we used to watch this show as first years. You know that, right? Oh, wow. Yeah, like me, Patrick Zaka, hashtag, or actually shout out again yeah. uh, to Burger <laughs> MD. Um, uh, yeah, we used to watch it together at his place in Midtown. He used to like throw it up on his like 60, uh, 60 inch. This like, really nice house yeah. or apartment. It's basically a house. It's basically a house, yeah. It's a house that like basically flies. So, um, yeah. So I mean, so okay, okay. I didn't even get to Game of Thrones. So basically, I love that show because the character development. You know, I, I right. think, you know, there was a time, at least for the first, I, I would say, six seasons that yes, the character development, like you didn't question anything about the characters because it was so well done. Yeah. Um, and then. I don't, do you, do you know what no, happened? This, no, I mean, this is exactly my thing is they spent so much time building these characters and then like, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched it, sorry, but know, the right? way they make Daenerys turn in that last season is just like, you can't, you spent all of these other seasons building her up as this one character. And then, and then in like four episodes, you make her completely the opposite. I mean, it's so disappointing. Yeah, it's so disappointing. I, I mean, I've never been as upset. I remember when I where we were when we when I watched the last episode. <laughs> I know, I know. One of the, it was like <laughs> it was actually one of those moments for me. So I was at a conference in San Diego, mm. and like I was, I just so happened to be there with my now fiance, mm-hmm. and we were both into the show. And we, you know, we had gotten, you know, we got food, we like we got order out. We already we had the whole mood set. <laughs> <laughs> and then, because we were like, maybe this last episode is going to make up, you know, for everything for the, else, <laughs> the garbage that was the last, you know, two seasons. And then it was the worst, worst. thing yeah. ever. I yeah. was, I was literally like, 
I was sick for like two days after that. <laughs> I was physically ill. <laughs> um, but the the only silver lining is that I've now read the, I've actually read the first four books. Oh. And the books are, if you can believe this, just can't, like just take the first five seasons, whatever seasons you like of Game of Thrones, they're at least three to four times better than that. Oh wow! The characters are better, the plot's more complex, the writing is phenomenal. Yeah. And the the, I mean, I mean the the the, the real like how real emotion like basically what he's trying to show you is not just what it's like to come to power but what the after effects of war Mm. Mm. on like a people, you know, he, I mean, he takes you into, you know, the holding cells and like the jails, like, I mean, you basically feel like you're walking through, you know, the aftermath or like, you know, basically, I don't know who painted Guernica. I don't know if Picasso or whatever, Mm. like when you see just the destruction that like war brings, he just lays it out. So amazing. Okay. So, we need to talk about COVID now because <laughs> I, I can get I can get really lost in stuff. Um, so I want to just I want to I want to rewind a little bit. So we're gonna go back to the end of February, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me tell me when you found out ab- about coronavirus, or when did you start noticing or hearing about it in you know the news and stuff? Yeah, so I don't have a TV or I didn't have a TV. Um, and until I moved in with my parents. So I gave birth in December and Mark had about five weeks of paternity leave. Mark's my husband. Um, he had about five weeks of paternity leave. So when he went back to Baltimore at the beginning of January, I moved in with my parents and still had like five weeks left of maternity leave. Mm -hmm. And I remember like I would put her down and then I would go downstairs and we would watch MSNBC every night. And that's really when I first started hearing about coronavirus. And it was actually enough to the point where I had been planning to spend the last week of my maternity leave in Baltimore with Mark. Um, And so we had even questioned like whether I should fly up there with her, with Charlie. Um, When when about, what what time about was this? That was um, the second week of February. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And I, um, we thought it was okay. Uh, So we we still went. Um, But I remember the, this man behind me, um, was sitting next to an Asian person and he, I remember overhearing him being like, do you have coronavirus? Cause I don't want to sit here if you do. Um, yeah. So it, it was like starting to hype up, but right. there were no cases in the U S yet at that point. Yeah. Yeah. No known cases in the U S at that point. Right. That's fair. Um, yeah. and so, okay. And, and so I know in March you were, in the intensive care unit. Yes. Tell me about what you were thinking before you started that rotation. Yeah. So were bef- you, go ahead. Were, were, were you looking forward to it or were you <laughs> dreading it? Let me tell you what I would tell people when I was talking about this rotation. <laughs> I would say if I could get through this month, I could do anything because 
at that time, this was without coronavirus. This was me basically trying to be a single parent doing 30 hour calls in the MICU um, and pumping every like three to four hours. Uh, what were you on in, uh, sorry, what were you on in February? Yeah. So February I did two weeks of ambulatory okay. rotations of clinics. And so basically March was my first full month back from maternity leave. Right. Okay. okay. And um, yeah, I would go about telling people that if I could do this, I could do anything. Okay. And then that's the, that's what you're telling people now. What are you, what are you telling yourself? <laughs> um, you can do this. Okay. Basically, um, just it w there was a lot of dread. I will be honest about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I fortunately have the luck of living in the same city as my parents and had the fortune of them opening their home to me and Charlie okay. to be able to move in. Um, and so Mark had two weeks of vacation planned to come as well. So I, I knew that at least like the middle part of the month would be a little bit of extra help having him here. Right. Right. Just some like emotional support. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and I had also <laughs> in anticipate and anticipation had reached out to FSAP and Who, what is that? Um, the faculty staff and assistant pro assistance program. Okay. Just to sort of, try and learn some of the coping mechanisms of how to handle the oh. stress that I would be going through that I anticipated going through. Right. Um, right. So, so it sounds like you were pretty worried. About how the yeah. Go. Yeah. I yeah. was. Did you already feel sort of stretched even before we got to the, before you got to the intensive care unit? You I know, think, with like pumping and. Right. Like yeah. And yeah. I was all learning how to go back to work with a baby and then, um, the worries of sort of how would she be doing with me being gone for 30 hours at a time. Right. And she was far from sleeping through the night at that time as well. So I was worried about how much sleep I would be getting because I'd have to sleep during the day when I got home and then try and sleep the other nights, um, knowing that I would be up like once or twice to feed her in the middle of the night. Yeah. So I was really worried about like how exhausted I would feel. Right. Um, okay. Um, and then, so, so take us to, you know, I don't, I mean, can you take us to day one or, yeah, can, no, or even, day, you know, yeah, just, I'll, I'll let you go. Day one, day one, Jane Fazio is taking over for her team. Okay. And she, <laughs> I remember it specifically because they got slammed that night. They got eight admissions. Okay. And so I was there with, my intern who was an EM resident um, and then my uh, categorical intern would start the next day because they switch on the second of the month, but it was the two of us and we were going around. So it was two of you guys. Yeah. Two of us. And you had eight new ones. Yes. And probably a couple old patients for people who, who don't know what the ICU <laughs> is like um, as an intern. I think usually they try and keep your cap to like four. I don't yeah. know, right? Yeah. Yeah. So to get <laughs> so, so as a senior to get eight new people overnight mm -hmm. who are very sick is um just the thought of that, you know, I'm sweating a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um and so that was the 
the first day that I heard the term PUI, which meant person under investigation. Okay. So I think at that point, because that was March 1, mm -hmm. at that point, there had been a lot of cases in Washington and California. Okay. Um, and, but none, none in Georgia, hmm. none known in Georgia. And so there was a woman who was admitted with, you know, without the pandemic, we, we said acute respiratory failure, uh, thought to be secondary to an asthma exacerbation from possibly a virus, the flu maybe. Mm-hmm. And then during their presentation, they did bring up that this, um, you know, we can't totally rule out coronavirus in this patient. Hmm. Um, and <laughs> I just remember how that changed sort of the mood as well as led to the attending having to make like four or five phone calls that day to hmm. see if we could get a test to even test her. Um, and they weren't offering it widely at that point. No, you'd have to contact the the um, Department of Public Health to be able to get a test in in the hospital. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was actually for probably the first two weeks of that month. Hmm. There was no there was no in-house test. They were all send out tests. And then those send outs would probably take a while to get forever. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm hmm. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I guess we got to the beginning. Tell, and I guess tell us about what, what it was like being in the ICU. I mean, I guess that was the first patient who you had to get a send out. But like, what was the, when did you guys start, you know, start picking up patient wise? So uh, I think the first confirmed patient that we had was March 8th. So mm -hmm. about a week later, that first. Those first couple of calls were okay. Um, I remember we got, you know, two to four patients each call cycle, so it wasn't it wasn't terrible at all. And uh, we had my interns even had time to rest for a few hours, um, but it was actually Anisha who admitted the first COVID positive patient. Okay. Uh, she it was actually interesting. She had gone to her primary care doc being, you know, classic symptoms, shortness of breath, cough, fever. Um, she had recently visited a nursing home and visited a friend in a nursing home. And they had swapped her for the flu in the clinic and just told her to go home. And then her PCP was just worried about her. So she called to follow up. And this patient was saying she was just not getting better and felt really bad. So her PCP told her to come to the emergency department um, and she was admitted and she ended up being our first ICU patient with coronavirus. She was intubated immediately when she got there. Wow. And so I, I wonder like what would have happened if the PCP hadn't called her, encouraged right. her to go to the ED. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like she was in like true respiratory distress. Yeah. yeah. But from what I remember she was saying that she was trying to avoid going to the ED because she didn't want to catch coronavirus. And so that was the interesting dynamic where people are trying to avoid the hospital mm -hmm. to avoid getting 
infected with coronavirus, but they're also having these like really serious symptoms. Um, yeah. It's like when, when does it get bad enough? That yeah. You can't treat it. At right. Home? Right. Right. Yeah. That's a really hard decision to make. Yeah. Um, so I wonder, I mean, it's, and then, so I guess when that first patient arrived, did you guys know, she, I mean, I, it wasn't your patient you were taking care of, but did they know in the ED that she had it? Like, cause that, were the tests being still like out of hot, like. Yeah. You know, still send outs. Out? Yeah. yeah. And so they, I can't remember if the ED had, had mentioned that they thought she had it when they admitted it to Anisha, but I know that Anisha immediately put her on contact precautions, mm-hmm. um, which. And then what were the precautions at that time? Yeah. So it, they were the same as they are now in terms of N95. Well, yeah. N95 and um, contact with the yellow gowns and gloves. Okay. And they had already started circulating that video of how to properly like don and doff properly put on and mm-hmm. take off your yeah. uh, personal protective equipment or PPE. Yeah. And we had to go to an in-person training, actually, since we were in the ICU, um, to have the infectious disease faculty teach us, basically watch us put it on and take it off to make sure we were doing it correctly. Right, right. But Because I remember there was a time where it was just, like, it wasn't N95. It was just the mask. Just the mask. So, So they, I'm trying to think. So they would just put droplet on at first, but I think that might've just been like a day or two because they um, started pretty quickly trying to move as many as they could to the negative pressure rooms for the okay. N95 masks, but they ran out of those very quickly as well. The masks. Okay. The, the rooms okay. and the masks. The masks <laughs> are like, since day one, since March 1st, you'd have to go to the charge nurse to get a mask. And then the charge nurse would tell you that you have to go to your program to get a mask. And these are surgical masks. These are not N95 masks. Um, Both, both were very on lockdown and there wasn't a lot of clear information, um, clear communication within the system on how people were supposed to get masks. Um, Which I almost feel like was a little intentional in, in, in so, in so far as, you know, when you're running out of materials. Oh yeah you don't want to just give it to any old person because you want them to evaluate if they really need it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and that is sort of a way to, you know, hold on to your stockpiles. Yeah. And, and my mom's the chief nursing officer at Emory university hospital. So I've had to the opportunity really to sort of see a lot of these conversations about and decisions being made about how the hospital is, adapting to this pandemic. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions I had asked her was like, I mean, why didn't we implement universal masking earlier? It seems to be something that all the hospitals are doing now, but kind of what was the delay in in making that decision? Mm -hmm. And she, she told me we just didn't have the supplies at that point. There was no, no good consistent supply chain. And we really Mm -hmm. needed to make sure that the people who were actually taking care of these folks who were either POIs or COVID positive had the materials that they needed to be safe. Um, And so now that there's more supply and more ability, um, they're able to provide the masks for everybody, 
every time they're in the hospital. But that mm-hmm. was just kind of one of my one one of the questions I'd had for her about when I thought thought about the frustrating things that happened early on in the pandemic. Um, was like, why couldn't we all just get masks more easily? And it just yeah. was because there weren't enough. Right, right. To go I around. Think, I think supply chain issues were a massive problem. Yeah. Throughout pandemic, uh, when you, I guess you, it sounds like even sort of reflecting on things that didn't seem quite right to you early on. I mean, were there other things that you felt were just frustrating and? Or, you know? Yeah, I think. I mean, the masks just again from day one were were a frustrating thing um the lack of clarity on what the proper protocols and procedures were Uh was also very frustrating um but it's kind of you know in retrospect it was not clear because there weren't any because this had never happened before. And so it's basically a lot of smart people were working on it, but when you're, I mean, I'll say like, I guess I was on the front lines. I'm I'm not like a front line, like a nurse, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. being, being there in the ICU in those early days, um, you just kind of had to make decisions for yourself and for your team that that felt safest to you um, until until those policies and procedures sort of um, were finalized and and were able to be implemented. Like I remember mm-hmm. when they started cohorting patients into um, 7K, like that one unit uh, where they started doing COVID units instead of just kind of having them within each of the different ICUs. Mm-hmm. They... Um, didn't require you to wear a mask going into those areas, mm. um, which now we, we would call them a warm zone. So when you're in there, you would want to be wearing at least a surgical face mask. Um, and obviously going into the room, they want you to have your N95 on. But I remember walking over there without a mask on and one of the nurses was like, don't you have a young baby at home? Why aren't you wearing a mask? <laughs> and I was oh, like, you know, that's a great question. <laughs> so then, so then, then I just made the decision to start wearing a surgical mask every day in the, mm. in the workspaces, um, outside of the, um, outside of the patient rooms. And this is, you know, towards when the supply chains were getting a little bit better, but, um, it was, I think just kind of, a bit of a wild west in terms of trying to figure out what to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I just want to say a shout out. Thank you nurses. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> I think, I think sometimes there is always this sort of natural rift between physicians, nurses and what have you. But I think the best teams, uh, those individuals work together well. And there's nothing like a nurse sort of checking you and being like, hey, look, right. <laughs> take care of yourself. Okay? Yeah. You yeah. Know, you're right. Um, yeah. Were you ever afraid of, because I, I guess you were saying you were staying at your parents' house at the time. Oh, yeah. Were you afraid of bringing it back to them? And what was your like procedure coming back home and stuff? Yeah. So every day, every day I was afraid of that. Um, I have both high-risk groups in terms of a kid under one and then parents over 65, so yeah. I was pretty, pretty afraid of bringing it home to them. Um, 
I we pretty early on implemented a a like procedure when we rigorous procedure exactly so no shoes inside the house uh everything would be wiped down and i still do this to every time i come home from the hospital i wipe it down with um like clorox bleach wipes and that includes my phone and my glasses and everything i've touched like my pen um and then wash my hands and I immediately go upstairs and take a shower. I don't touch anybody or anything until I've showered. And then I can come downstairs and like, um, yeah, touch my baby. (laughs) Hold her. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, So I kind of want to go back. I know we're, we're, we we took ourselves out of the hospital. I want to take us back in for a quick sec. Um, Now, what was it like taking care of some of these patients? And I, I guess most mostly logistically, um, mm-hmm. because I know sometimes there was difficulty, you know, people hear about gowning up with PPE mm-hmm. and taking care of patients. Was it hard to go between rooms? And how do you manage multiple patients who, yeah. you know, either have COVID or are PUIs? Like, just tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So I think... Um... You know, some of the recommendations have been that you can sort of wear the same PPE from room to room as long as you're sort of like cleaning your hands in between. Mm-hmm. But, but early on in my mind, I didn't want to do that because, you know, one could be coronavirus positive and one could just be PUI. Right. I didn't want to bring that from one, the, room, to the one room to the next. And mm-hmm. so I think one of the one of the difficulties early on when we did have such a limited PPE was minimizing the people that were going in, the minimizing the number of times somebody had to go into the room. Mm -hmm. And so making um, decisions not to put a person on an insulin drip because the nurse would have to go in there repeatedly to titrate it. Mm -hmm. Um, And trying to manage it with more of a sub Q insulin um, insulin injections rather than a drip. Uh, it was also learning how to work a pump. Um, when it starts beeping, have the nurse guide you through which buttons to press to get it to stop beeping, because then that would save them from having to go in with PPE. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're already in the room, it was having, um, and then having, the ventilator too, exactly. <laughs> adjusting the ventilator, um, yeah. you know, as a resident, they really say that you can not press many buttons, um, because, you know, without the proper supervision, so you then have your respiratory therapist telling you what to do from outside the room as well and vice versa. I mean, nurses and RTs did those kinds of things that, um, were kind of a little, yeah not necessarily in their defined practices just to sort of help the patient get what they needed when they needed it and try and conserve as much as possible. Hmm. It meant also very few people in a room when somebody was coding. Um, So I remember the first code that we did on a PUI, um, there was no, there was no policy on it at that point. Um, and it was after that code where we all sat down and we were like, we really need to, we really need to have a policies and procedures for how to do this to protect healthcare workers, but also 
give the person who's going through a code the best chance of survival. Yeah. Um, what all? Ha- I mean, how did it? How did it start? What all happened? Yeah. So it was a new admission. who's still down in the ED, and the attending and I were in there alone actually because we were. He was already on like three blood pressure medications. Um, mm-hmm. And these are these are IV medications yes. to essentially keep their blood pressure yeah. in the like IV range. adrenaline to, to pump up their <laughs> blood pressure. Um, so like three different kinds of those medications and um, he's already on sort of like max support on the ventilator. So my attending and I had gone in there alone to try and troubleshoot um, if like positioning, because one side of the lung looked worse than the other, trying to prop the lungs in a different position to see if that would help improve, you know, oxygen delivery. Hmm. Um, And, and, while we were in there, he just he just progressively got worse, and eventually his heart stopped and he coded. And so, um, I'm I'm doing chest compressions because I'm not going to make my attending do the chest compressions and me run the code. How old was your? I mean, you don't have to say who. I guess you could just say how old were, um, they, were they like? Were they? I mean, some of our attendings just can't do them, you know? No, no, no. Yeah, it was it was Doctor Martz, um, and oh, who, okay. who I. Okay want to give him a shout out because he was just, he was the biggest advocate for our safety that we had experienced at that point. Like when he started, it was starting to get really bad Mm -hmm. and he just sat us all down like day one was like, I really want us all to be safe. And I really want us all to provide the best patient care that we can in a way that is safe and protecting all of you guys. Um, So I really, really appreciated that from him. Yeah. Um, so really take yeah. care of other people. If you get right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So if you, if you run into a room, um, to save that one person and you get out, it's kind of like a one-to-one, but if you're able to sort of take the 10 seconds to put on your mask properly, then you can give yourself the best chance of protecting yourself to be able to take care of a lot more people after that. But we had gowned up, we were already in the room. So I start chest compressions mm-hmm. and then they call code blue. And then we have an, a respiratory therapist come in. Actually, I think there were two respiratory therapists that came in at that time. And then there was a pharmacist. Um, Are they all gowning up? I mean, it, it takes a little bit of time. It takes a little bit of time. Um, and so you're just going, you're just pumping away. Just pumping, pumping away. Yeah. And then um, we didn't have a nurse to work the pump. So we didn't know... Oh. How to sort of up titrate those medications? Um, right, all the drips. All the drips. So we had to wait for that, um, okay. or started trying. Or Dr. Martz actually started trying to do it okay. with the nurse while she's gowning up, trying to tell him which buttons to press. Um, and then pharmacy didn't gown up. They stayed outside the room though, but like not really. He kept kind of coming in and out of the room. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and the fellow wanted to come in but couldn't find an N95. So my intern had to go run and get him an N95 because there wasn't one any close, mm. anywhere close by. And they were being held kind of, kind of like in this room outside of the ED. Uh-huh. Um, so it sounds like a lot was going on. Yeah. And then I'm basically just exhausted, exhausted. And then he's getting um, sort of hooked and unhooked from the vent because during a code when you're intubated you actually start bagging them so 
in my mind, I'm just like, well, there goes a bunch of aerosols when, when he's getting unhooked from the vent. And then when we get his pulse back and he gets hooked back up to the vent and then he loses his pulse again, he gets unhooked from the vent. And so that happened sort of like, sorry, (laughs) three times. Um, like right in my face while I'm doing chest compressions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was just, I don't know. It was, it was after that where I seriously considered not coming back to my house with where my parents lived, um, and going back to the condo where Mark and I had lived before I'd moved in. Cause we still had our stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you at that point, I mean, you, that that's probably a high risk. Yeah. Exposure. Right. Fortunately, yeah. I was in full PPE and had my N95 on and, and goggles and everything. Right. But it's still, you didn't, it was like, a, it was just the whole, like, we don't know. Is it droplet? Is it, is airborne. it airborne? Um, so you're just like, it's, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what do we, how, am I actually protected using this? Um, yeah. But I, um, it, it was that where it was just like, we don't like the supplies, the protection is not really readily available for people to come in and help. And we need to sort of limit how many people are coming in. So that's where we sort of came up with the protocol of like creating a COVID crash cart so mm-hmm. that you didn't have to bring the whole cart into the room either. Cause then that would whole thing had to be wiped down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was sort of, um, making sure there were like PPE kits in there with N95s and face shields and gowns. I don't know if that stuck when you started in the next yeah, month. Yeah, no, no, that was, that was kind of the procedure, you know, yeah. there would be the, the, the code cart sort of outside the room right. and the pharmacist would do their best to stay outside the room. Um, and then you just try and have basically, you know, you, a nurse, Mm-hmm. to do meds someone mm-hmm. else probably two people to do compressions yeah and that was basically it yeah um, and you just try and you know cycle out your compressors and hopefully bring them back right um yeah yeah i mean i feel like you guys really uh trailblazed the past where there really wasn't one for us uh so i you know I feel like I am eternally indebted to, <laughs> to you guys for that because you really had the trial by fire. Yeah. It <laughs> was on the fire. On the fire. <laughs> that little like meme that where that dog is sitting in a burning room and he's like, everything is fine. I'm fine. Right. But, but I mean, like, I think the interesting thing to have observed is how, quickly the healthcare systems like Grady and Emery have adapted in the face of such like circumstances. So I remember Karen law being really receptive and inter like, um, intervolved in how intervolved, sorry, involved and how we were I was going to talk like, yep, intervolved. That's a new word. (laughs) That that belongs in Webster's or Miriam somewhere. (laughs) Um, so it was um it was nice to see how receptive they were um and how quickly they did try and make changes like when towards the end of the month 
I, you just, we didn't know how it was going to go. And I think we're kind of in a similar position right now. I, I feel a lot of the same um, emotions that I did back in March in terms of with the increase in cases. Like, you just don't know, like, are we going to get to how it was in New York where things are just totally overwhelmed and there are no beds available? Or is it going to be able to get flattened again and kind of not have that overwhelming circumstances go on? But it was towards the end of the month where, you know, I just, those 30 hour calls were just all that much more exhausting because not only was there just not a break at that time, um, the, you had to wear PPE the whole time. It was like being on edge for 30 hours, like constant vigilance kind of thing where you're fighting this unseeable enemy and you can't really feel like you can't let your guard down because then you're going to like touch your face and get infected mm-hmm. sort of thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then this was probably all like emphasized in my mind because I was just so nervous about bringing it home to my parents. Um, mm-hmm. And I just, I told them like, we can't do these 30 hour calls during, <laughs> during the pandemic because right. it's just, it's not um, like, yeah, you're going to have mistakes. Um and so they were really open to that and had a few conversations with people and they changed it pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I think so, I, I was pretty impressed with how quickly they were able to, to change a system that had been in place for so long. Yeah. You know, like even when, you know, I think the change they made for ICU going from 30 hour shifts to, you know, to 12 hour shifts, which takes which requires a lot more people <laughs> in mm-hmm. order to do. And then like shifting all the other rotations to make that yeah. happen. And yeah. then on top of that, getting rid of in-person clinic and like switching oh, yeah. everything to virtual clinic. Oh, yeah. you know, I feel like they had, I mean, <laughs> it's like you, you want to play in Monday morning quarterback and say, you know, there wasn't, you know, strict protocols about this and right, you know, right, we right, should right. have had more guidance here. But then you look at the situation, you're like, this is, um, <laughs> That that's a massive undertaking to try and yeah. do for a program what we have like fifty people per class. Oh yeah. Oh, so you're yeah. doing this, you're you're changing the schedules of like hundred and fifty people, you know. At four maybe, hospitals. Four hospitals, yeah. yeah. I mean it's just like you add the complexity on complexity and you get numbers that are like, you know, crazy. I mean it's, yeah. it's kind of absurd. Yeah. yeah. So I I it, it's I feel like we it was just a really difficult, unforeseen situation that yeah. we were all in. Um, yeah. I wonder, you know, the only other thing I guess I wonder is that, you know, you mentioned, I mean, there's a lot of different things sort of going against you. I mean, things were changing a bunch. Didn't know what the protocols were in the ICU. Those are still getting formed. But then at the same time, you know, you were still, you were still breastfeeding at the time. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. how were you finding time <laughs> in the midst of all this to do that or like it seems like you had this other thing that was making yes. things yeah a lot already more like at baseline yeah um so shout out to the makers of lv because that's a wearable breast pump um oh, so okay Did, I, didn't, I didn't even hear the word yeah what is lv e-l-v-i-e okay um so yeah basically they're pumps that you can put in and wear around their battery uh, like rechargeable oh. and so that's how i would make it through rounds in the morning um so you didn't actually yep. have an opportunity to mm, sometimes you would but i remember um 
it's kind of like morbid, but the last two calls, you know, <laughs> it was like 10 PM and I was like, well, I'm going to go pump. I hope nobody codes while I'm doing that. And oh, somebody, geez. somebody coded while I was pumping that time. What? Yeah. Um, so it was just, it was hard. Um, and you had but, to stop and go, cause I mean, you're uh -huh. the senior. Yeah. Right. So the interns really aren't, you know, equipped right, to take right. care of. I mean, they're March interns. I mean, they're, they're, right. I'm they're, not gonna give them no credit. You know, they're right. pretty good. But they're, you know, I'm, I yeah. was pretty nervous when I was in March and trying to. Take oh yeah, care of, I yeah. was a June intern in the ICU, and I was still nervous. Right. Like, you, wanna, you haven't really run codes on your own. You don't really do that until your second year when you're like in the Mickey by yourself. Um, not yeah. by yourself, but on call <laughs> overnight. <laughs> Um, with, with some ancillary support. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, um, fortunately in that renovated unit on Grady, they have, um, it's, I think technically called the, uh, med like meditation room or something. Okay. Okay. Um, but it's listed on their lactation rooms. So it's, oh, it's, right behind the workroom multi-purpose mm -hmm, multi so it's a separate space and it's on the unit which was very nice um mm -hmm. so it was just kind of able to leave everything there um breast milk is safe at room temperature for four hours so yeah, you have about that amount of time to get to it before um you can't use it wow. uh, but yeah, I mean, like that whole process was also just like every time going into the room to pump, it would just wipe it down with um, yeah. more Clorox wipes. Yeah. So big, big fan of Clorox wipes. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of people were in March. That, that, that's why, you know, we really couldn't find. Yeah. Much. I'm actually surprised that you had. It's, it's much only, only because Mark is like, a very clean person mm. he, so he's he's messy but he's clean okay. if that makes sense so he he's not tidy but he likes to sanitize things i guess i see okay um, so he had bought like i just serendipitously had bought mm. a bunch of hand sanitizers and these um like very thin to go packs of Clorox wipes. Oh yeah, I know I know the one you're talking about. My yeah. fiance loves those. Yeah. So yeah. so I had a whole pack of that, um, which got it's weird, me weird, you know, I I could have used some of those. It's funny you didn't you didn't let anybody <laughs> I, I don't feel like you broadcast that information very widely during the time. <clears throat> well people don't really broadcast things that they hoard. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that's true. Um wow, okay. So I feel like man, we've talked about a lot. Is there, are there, is there anything that we didn't get a chance to touch on today or like anything that, you know, an aspect of your time in the MICU during COVID that, that I kind of skipped over? I think, um, probably like two things that come to mind. I think the first thing was just, uh, how grateful I was for the team that I had because, okay at baseline it's really like your team dynamic is important because you're spending 30 hours straight with these people yeah. um so i was super super grateful for the two interns that i had um and it um 
it was, it was, it like took that level of stress out knowing that they were really strong clinicians. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it was also like, I felt responsible for them in terms mm-hmm. of if they got COVID, I didn't like, I wouldn't ever forgive, forgive myself. Yeah. Cause, and so that was kind of back to like creating my own policies to make everybody feel safe. So every time we would see a patient, we would, I would make us wear PPE. Um, and so obviously that's not the best use of PPE, but at that time you didn't know who had COVID and who didn't. And a lot of the times these folks were intubated and they couldn't tell you. Um, they couldn't tell you what their symptoms were. Um, and so until we could get the test back, it was, um, that was kind of the policy I put for our team on our call days. Um, so basically until you guys get the test back that it was negative. Yeah. PPE, gown and up. Yeah. Mask. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then I think, I guess that sort of bleeds into just the kind of camaraderie that I did feel with like all people on the larger team, like mm-hmm. the larger healthcare team. Yeah. Like again, it was um, like, it was annoying that masks were sort of unlocked down, but in all other regards and respects of how relationships with nurses were that month, it was just one of the best experiences that I've had wow. at Grady. Yeah. And everybody, um, was just really sort of like open and and vulnerable. communicative and vulnerable, yeah, and like talking a lot more than I think normally happens, um, which I was surprised about because I feel like when people are under stress, it doesn't necessarily bring out the best of them. Mm-hmm. But it was really something that kind of united a lot of people in terms of be creating a team dynamic of like you know, we're all in this together. It's everybody's safety that we care about. Um, and we want to be able to sort of provide the best care that we can to these folks. Wow. Um, I I can't really, there's no real better way to end our time together than on that amazing, beautiful high note that even out of, you know, like the confusion Mm -hmm. and the pain and mire of COVID that, you know, people sort of rose to, to become greater than they were before yeah. it all started. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's awesome. So guys, uh, this has been another episode of the silent doc. Uh, I want to say thank you, Dr. Angles for coming <laughs> on the show and sharing, I mean, some really incredible, uh, stories of, about your time in the MICU. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. So I just want to say to everyone else, um, this is The Silent Doc. Uh, you can reach me at The Silent Doc on Instagram, Facebook. I have an email, silentdoc.podcast at gmail.com. If you have stories or you would like to share your experience with COVID-19, you are always welcome to come on the show. All right, guys. That's a wrap for the show. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.